Welcome to the Richard Brooks Show. I help you build a business that matters. Network marketing isn't easy. Success at any level requires self-motivation, persistence, enthusiasm, networking, promotion, courage, and work. I've interviewed hundreds of global influencers, network marketing gurus, network marketing heroes, representing dozens of companies. Sales leaders that have demonstrated that anyone can build a four-year career. The Richard Brooks Show is a collection of inspirational stories of what is possible. These achievements are possible and inspirational like Olympic athletes. And like Olympic athletes, most people will never be one. Join me as I hear the stories of global influencers, network marketing gurus, and network marketing heroes. Hey everybody, Richard Brook here with another episode of The Authentic Networker. I've got one of the greats with me today, Mike Robbins. This is a guy who is just authentic to the core. He was drafted by the New York Yankees out of high school, but turned him down to go play college ball at Stanford. He later signed with the Kansas City Royals, but his career was cut short by injuries. So what did he do? Well, you know, just became one of the top business consultants in the world to companies like Google, eBay, the NBA, and Microsoft. Mike's a keynote speaker, seminar leader, and author of five best-selling books including Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and We're All in This Together, something we all need to hear right about now. Mike, it's an honor to have you here today. Hey, everybody. Richard Bliss Brook here with another The Authentic Networker podcast, and I have none other than Mike Robbins here to share the stage with me today, and we're going to talk about, amongst other things, his new book, We're All in This Together, couldn't be a more timely topic for what's going on in America right now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You you could have called it cray cray. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that was already taken, but you know, that's a good one. That'll be the sequel. Yeah. Well, so uh, folks, uh, you know, I actually don't think I've ever met Mike, but you know, like, face-to-face, and maybe given the new era, I never will. (laughs) Right. Uh, But uh, we've been connected now for about 10 years, and I followed his career and his philosophy, and uh, and he's, he's, this is like his fifth book. Is this your fifth book? Yeah. Uh, Mike, so first book was Focus on the Good Stuff. Second book, Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken. Third book, Nothing Changes Until You Do. Fourth book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And this book, we're all in this together, creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. And as I was thinking about your book, Mike, I was thinking about yesterday, um, and I forget his name, because he's he kind of hides himself, but the founder of Netflix did a uh, really rare, if not first ever interview on, I think it was MSNBC uh, last night. And uh, I imagine you study people like him who has created a like a counterculture in corporate America. Right. You know, the culture of Netflix is totally different than every other company in the world. And he's just burying people. Right. He's just crushing the business model of entertainment. So let's start this interview off. I want to get into like some deep story about who you are and where you came from. But tell us first about this book. We're all in this together. And what's this book about? Well, the book is, there's actually two primary focuses of the book. The main one 
Richard is, you know, the work that I've done for the last 20 years really focuses on teamwork and culture and how do you create an environment where people can thrive and perform at the highest level. Um, and secondarily, though, and you sort of alluded to it when you were, you know, introducing me, I really wanted this book to come out in 2020. I didn't know it was going to come out in the middle of the pandemic. I finished writing it at the end of 2019, but had a pretty good sense, just the trajectory of things that as we got closer to this election and the nature of sort of how things are in America and around the world, there's so much divisiveness right now. And while the book isn't really about politics or kind of what we see going on, what I've learned over 20 years of studying people and teams is that we can't thrive if we're constantly fighting with each other. We gotta be able to find common ground and work together, even and especially if we disagree. And disagreements and conflicts are really important and can be healthy. But I think sometimes we forget, both in our teams and our organizations, but also either in our country and our world, that there really isn't to them. It's all us if we're gonna thrive. So that's really what the book's about. So maybe spin off, uh, I was, uh, I listen to more books than I read, but yeah. I was uh, listening to you posture on one of the pillars of the book, the 2015 uh, championship that the Golden State Warriors yep. uh, won. And can you can you like maybe tap into that story a little bit and spin into the book? Yeah. What are we going to learn from this book that well, the Golden State Warriors learned? <laughs> well, I mean, look, it helps when you have Steph Curry and, you know, uh, Draymond Green and, and Clay Thompson on the team in 2015 as they did. But I'm a, I'm a former athlete myself, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, and huge sports fan. I actually live here in the Bay Area. So the Warriors, uh, I've rooted, rooted for the Warriors since I was a kid, and they were terrible for, you know, they won a championship in 1975 right after I was born and then didn't win another championship until 2015. But the story that I share in the book and the first principle, the first pillar in the book is about creating what we call psychological safety, which is basically, Richard, right, group trust. It means the group is safe enough for us to take risks, you know, come up with crazy ideas, even fail, not that we want to, but we know it's safe to do that. And there was a time, so the Warriors were in the finals against the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2015, and they were down two to one against the Cavs, and the Cavs had LeBron, and the Warriors were in the finals for the first time, and their first-year head coach, Steve Kerr, who had won some championships as a player with the Bulls and the Spurs, everybody in the Warriors organization was basically in this situation for the very first time. And after going down two to one, one of their young assistant coaches was watching film, and he said, hey... I think we can exploit the Cavs if we play our smaller lineup more of the game, meaning let's bench our center, Andrew Bogut, and let's start Andre Iguodala, who'd been their great six-man coming off the bench. And this is a big deal. You don't normally change your lineup in the middle of the NBA <laughs> Finals, right? But they decided in Game 4 to go with that. That's the lineup they often will play during crunch time or at the end of the game. They start, decided to start with that. And Iguodala had been an all-star and a great player, but had been coming off the bench all year. So it was going to be a different role for him. And not only did they win game four and tie the series up, they went on and won the championship that year. They won the next three games in a row. And Iguodala was actually named the MVP of the NBA Finals. And Steve Kerr, the head coach, gave the credit to Nick Urin, who was his young assistant, who made the suggestion. And he said publicly, I want to give him credit because it was really a bold suggestion that he brought up. And we decided to go with it. Now, if it hadn't worked, he said, I would have taken the blame. I wasn't going to throw this kid under the bus. Right. But basically, to me, it exemplified, even at the highest level of sports and competition, somebody like Steve Kerr and the Golden State Warriors creating that kind of environment that's psychologically safe enough that this young assistant can say, hey, coach, I think we should change the lineup. And he knew that it was safe to bring up that idea, whether they used it or not. And then they did, and it helped him win, and they actually got credit for it. 
Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And so great story and great run. And <laughs> you could pin it all on the kid, Nick, who in a different culture would never have dreamed to make such a, such a suggestion. Exactly. Because it's none of his business. Exactly. And look, a lot of that for everybody listening, again, whether you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're working basically with yourself or you have a small team or even a larger team. And you can think about this even with our families and in our relationships. It's like if we're in positions of leadership or influence, are we creating an environment where people around us feel safe enough to bring up ideas like, Nick, you were in this, you know, young assistant coach for the Golden State Warriors, and are we open to them? And then similarly, if we find ourselves in the situation, maybe we're not the head coach, but we're that young assistant coach, metaphorically, do we feel safe enough to actually bring up our ideas, whether they get adopted or not? And that's something that what we know from peak performance research, Richard, that when you create that kind of environment, this is based on the research of a professor named Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School, who's been studying psychological safety for a couple of decades, what we know is that teams really have a chance to thrive. When that psychological safety doesn't exist, it's very difficult for the team to thrive. Yeah. And it's a different application, but an application of that that I think we teach in the process of sales is if the prospect has to trust you first yeah. before you can start selling, Totally. Uh, because when you're selling, you're, you know, here's my feature, here's my benefits, here's my promises. Right. And none of that does any good if the prospect doesn't trust you. Trust is so like a motto that we teach is trust, trust. Yeah. Verb noun. Yeah. As your number one sales strategy. And you're positioning it as your number one team performance strategy. And you're so right. And you know, from all your experience in sales yourself and in coaching and, and leading, you know, sales organizations, I mean, so much of that, right? There's that whole saying, you know, everybody likes to buy, but nobody likes to be sold. And so exactly. at some level, right, at some level, it's like, I think about this too, like, I love to buy things, products, services, things when I need them, and they're going to help me. But if I feel like someone is leading with their sales pitch, whatever it is, I'm immediately, like most of us are, turned off and defensive. Because now I'm like, okay, they're leading with their agenda, not really interested in getting to connect with me. Now, the same could be said in a lot of cases with leadership, because a lot of leaders are focused on the result they need the team to produce, right? Which makes sense. That's part of your job as a leader. But if you get interested and curious about the people on your team and really want to meet them where they are, similar to the prospect in sales, then you can understand more about who they are, what matters to them. That's what starts to create that deeper sense of trust. You know, there's all these cliches that, you know, people like you and I like to spout off, but there's that whole notion of, you know, people don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. And the reason why these cliches are cliches is because there's deep wisdom in them. Right. <laughs> a lot of truth, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us, so... Where did you get interested in peak performance? Was it sports? And tell us your sports story. Yeah. So you you have an interesting story, which I've never asked you. Where yeah, you graduated from. Um, I mean, you you could have gone and played Yankee professional baseball, right? right? And you I opted get, instead to play for Stanford. Yeah. So I so I grew Who up here. That? In, I I grew up here in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I still live as I was mentioning before, and I got drafted out of high school by the Yankees, um, which was a huge thrill. Wow. You know, I, I started playing baseball when I was seven. So I mean, my dream was, you know, to pitch in the major leagues. 
Um, but I also, you know, education was really important in my family and had gotten an opportunity and gotten recruited to play baseball at Stanford. So um, I had a choice to make out of high school. You know, you can sign a pro contract out of high school if you get drafted like I did, but then you got to go into the minor leagues and you basically can't go play in college. And, you know, I chose to go to Stanford, which has a great baseball program in addition to being a really great school. And, you know, it's a risk, but the thought process behind it is both you get your education, but also if I went to Stanford and was able to stay healthy and, and play while I was there, I'd probably get drafted again um, when right. my time at Stanford was done. And after my junior year at Stanford, I did get drafted again, this time by the Kansas City Royals, which, although not as sexy as the Yankees, in a lot of ways, a lot of ways, from a practical standpoint, better to get drafted by a small market team like the Royals than the Yankees if you're going to want to try to get to the major leagues because you can move through the system a little bit faster. Um, they're not going to get as many free agents, if you will. So I'm actually working my way through the Kansas City Royal system. There was a pretty good pathway. I mean, still hard to get to the major leagues because there's a bunch of levels of the minor leagues you got to go through. But unfortunately for me, Richard, I was a pitcher and I got injured, uh, tore ligaments in my elbow when I was in my third season, still in the minors with Kansas City. And so that derailed my career. I had, you know, three surgeries over the next two years and actually wasn't ever able to come back. And so right. was forced to retire from baseball at the age of 25 after starting, you know, at seven. And it was, um, I mean, it was devastating. It was, you know, life altering in, in at the time in not very many good ways because this had been the path. But the thing though, as disappointed as I was when my career ended in baseball and as, you know, scared as I was, what the heck am I going to do next? I mean, this is the thing I had focused most of my attention on. What I had become most fascinated by while I was playing was a couple of things. In addition to the game, I love the game, but I was fascinated by the fact that it wasn't always the most talented people in players that were the most successful. I mean, it took some talent for sure, but I played with a lot of guys who had a ton of talent who didn't always translate it onto the field. And I played with some other guys with less talent who were able to have more success. And that was always curious to me. And I also noticed even the most successful guys that I played with didn't always seem to be the happiest or the most fulfilled. In some cases, some really, really successful guys I played with were miserable. And I was like, look, I want to be successful. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to be in the major leagues and win a Cy Young Award and win a World Series and make millions of dollars, but I don't think I want to be miserable. So I was just curious about that. And I started to actually read books, um, you know, books like Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson. This was in the mid to late 90s when I was, was playing, you know, pro ball. And then what I also became fascinated by was team dynamics. Because again, I was on some teams with really good talent, but the team wasn't always necessarily good. Because a lot of times you get really good players together with big egos and it's like the team chemistry can get all messed up. And I was on some other teams where, you know, we had decent talent, not great, but the chemistry was amazing and the team would be fantastic. We would like beat other teams that had better players than we did, which I was like, how does that work? That doesn't even make sense to me, but I think it's fascinating. Now, I erroneously, Richard, thought all of this stuff had to do with sports. I move home to the Bay Area. I get a job working for an internet company in San Francisco in the late 90s, and I immediately noticed right away, oh, that's not a sports thing. This is a human thing. It's not always the most talented people that are the most successful in business, and it's not always the most successful people that are the happiest and most fulfilled, and it's definitely not teams that have the most talented people that make the best teams. So after just a couple years of working for a few tech companies, I became really interested in personal growth and development on the individual basis, but also in sort of group dynamics, and that's what started to lead me down the path of, of being curious in peak performance. And the last 20 years since I started my consulting business, like 
that's all the stuff that I read and research and write about and speak about because those intangible things, as you and I know, and just about everybody listening, those are the big things that make the difference. Yes, it helps to have some talent. Yes, it helps to be selling a product or a service that's actually useful and valuable. But at the end of the day, it's all the stuff that goes on inside our head and our heart and then the relationships that we have amongst each other that really are going to allow us to perform at the highest level or not. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's such a huge subject. I, I'm, in, the, in my mind right now, I'm calling it the McFarlane concept. My wife and I just watched that movie for the second time. No, oh, I haven't seen it. Ago. I haven't seen it. Oh, oh you're going to love McFarlane. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, this is a little town in Central California that everybody forgot. It's a little farm worker town. Um, it's a Kevin Costner movie. And oh, really? It's, it's a great movie. Basically, uh, he's, he's a down and out coach who gets kind of, he, he fails his way to McFarland. Hmm. I think he started at Boise state and he ends up at McFarland and he takes on, he actually creates a, a cross country team, uh, out of these farm worker kids who have no future. Hmm. And he wins the state championship with him, and it's a true story. Oh, I gotta, oh, I gotta see it. I love it. Yeah, and the guy is still—he still lives in McFarland, and he was the cross country coach for like twenty-five years. And it reminds me of uh, John, the, the coach in Oakland that you interviewed. Um, oh, John, John Beam. Yeah. So yeah. I, I listened to that podcast. I was fascinated by it. I, yeah. I have to tell you, I spent an hour and a half on the phone with Fresno State University talking to them about John Beam and your interview. Really? I sent yes, I sent it to John Elway. Okay. I said you got to you got to listen to this interview. I love it. He's a he's a kindred Stanford spirit of yours. I, I, I met John Elway. One and only time I met John Elway was on my recruiting trip to Stanford. The the Broncos had a bye week that week in the NFL and he was back uh, hanging out with his college buddies watching the Stanford football game. So that was a big thrill when I got to meet him. Um, well, that's fantastic. You know, for anyone listening, who's not familiar with John Beam, he's the head yeah, coach. Tell at, that story. So he's the head coach currently at Laney College in Oakland, where I grew up. Um, but he was the head coach at my high school, Skyline High School in Oakland, which is where I met him in the late 80s when I was there. He's, his team, his Laney College Eagles, are featured on the current season of a show on Netflix called Last Chance U, which focuses on junior college football. And it's fascinating, all the, all the seasons. But this one in particular, I was obviously interested because it focuses on John and his team at Laney and Oakland. And John and I had lost touch a little bit, but I reconnected with him recently and had a chance to talk to him on the podcast. And just such a you know, he's in his early 60s, been coaching for 40 years, and has stayed in Oakland his entire coaching career, which is pretty remarkable, and has sent over 100 players to Division I colleges and, and you know, about a dozen or so to the NFL. Um, and pretty old school, if you watch the show. He, yeah. he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't pull a lot of punches. He kind of gets right in these guys' faces. But the thing that I would say, again, using John as an example, and I, and I say this a lot of times to leaders, I had another one of my coaches on my podcast about a year ago named Dean Stotts from Stanford. And while Coach Stotts' perspective is a little different and, and sort of personality is a little different than John Beam's, similarly, Dean said something to me, Richard, that I thought was so simple but poignant. He said his philosophy for coaching, and he coached at Stanford for 37 years, ton of success. You know, they won a couple national championships in the late 80s before I got there and then, you know, built one of the best programs in college baseball. And Dean said, I always believed that I had to love you hard so I could push you hard. And to Love your point, that. 
earlier about the sales thing, you got to get people to trust you first before you sell them anything. Again, whether we're talking about leadership or, or family, personal relationships, it's like if we love people hard, if we let them know I care about you, I got your back genuinely with no agenda, then they'll give us permission to push them and challenge them. But it can't be the other way around. It's the same thing with selling, right? If you come in with the sales pitch, even if you have something that I absolutely need, it's just like this with feedback. If you come to me, Richard, you could have the best piece of feedback for me in the world that I need this feedback. But if I don't already know that you care about me and we haven't already established some kind of that in our relationship, I'm going to be defensive. I'm not going to listen to your feedback. And, and that's why it's so important, you know, that we build that psychological safety and that we create that kind of environment within our teams and our relationships, because ultimately for us to really thrive and be successful, we need that kind of feedback. We need those kind of conversations. We need to be challenged, but we have to remember that it has to come first with that authentic sense of care and, you know, appreciation for each other. Yeah. And, and your whole interview of him, I mean, it's so uh, reminded me of McFarland and, and I'm, I'm losing, um, the other one I'll send you if you haven't seen it is um, who is uh, Goldie Hawn's husband, Kurt? Oh, Kurt Russell. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen the movie of Kurt Russell's dad and the uh, A team in Portland? No, I gosh, yeah, I got, I got to get more re- movie recommendations from you. But, uh, oh yeah. my gosh, you have to watch this movie. <laughs> I mean, it's like a Netflix true story documentary of all people. Kurt Russell's dad who played the sheriff on Bonanza for 13 years. Right, right. Beatle actor in Hollywood. Yeah. He bails out of Hollywood, goes to Portland, buys a, not a AAA, but an A team. Oh, I've seen the promo for this on, on Netflix. Oh, I you have to yeah. watch it. it. It's the same, you know, yeah. I guess the word I'll use to simplify this is yes. chemistry. Chemistry, yeah. So, Mike, you're you've been speaking to Fortune 100 companies. You're on. Yeah. I mean, I can't even. I mean, you're consulting and coaching and speaking for the who's who of corporate America. Yeah. If I own a company, big company, and I guess you know the bigger the it is, the harder it is, right? In some ways. So yeah. yeah so I own a big company. I own uh, whatever Facebook or Microsoft right. or Ford Motor Company. And you get a chance to sit down with me and you're going to talk to me about creating chemistry in the culture of my company. How am I going to do that? How well, are you, what are you going to tell me I need to do to do that? <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the first thing, honestly, in big companies, you know, we work with, you know, Google and Wells Fargo and Microsoft and eBay and Schwab and these, right? It depends, honestly, where, who I'm talking to, quite frankly, where do, you know, if I'm talking to the CEO in, or, you know, the board or the people at the most senior level, that's one conversation. If I'm talking to people down through the organization, and it could be, you know, managers or leaders at different levels, all the way to individual contributors, the context of the conversation changes. So when I'm talking to the CEO or the executive team, a lot of what we're talking about is alignment. Meaning that if you take an executive leadership team of a big corporation that has 50 or 100,000 employees, but this is true, by the way, even with a smaller, much smaller business, any misalignment that exists in that room with those leaders, and you know, you've got the head of sales and you've got the head of engineering and the head of product and the you know, head of legal and HR and finance all the way down, 
if they don't operate as one team, like they're each other's first team, as my friend Pat Lencioni, who wrote Five Dysfunctions of a Team, likes to talk about, their team one is my peers. If there's misalignment, the sales, the head of sales is, you know, at odds with the head of product, which often happens, right? It's like- Or legal. Or legal, right? Yeah, legal's always <laughs> saying no, and the sales team is mad, or whatever the case may be, or the finance team is like, we can't afford that. Now, they, they have to have robust conversations and debates. They have to advocate for their part of the organization. But that senior executive leadership team needs to operate as one team. If they don't, there's going to be exponential misalignment all the way down through the organization. So, you know, product and sales fighting with each other ends up being that two or three levels down, they're not partnering, they're not collaborating, and there's all kinds of chaos going on. Now, that's easier said than done. And one of the simple distinctions that I talk about, and this is something I learned in baseball, was the difference between your job and your role. We use those words interchangeably in, in the business world, but they're different. Your role is what you do right? Like in sports, it's like I was a pitcher, right? In, in business, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm this in the sales organization or the product organization or in the legal or whatever. My, my title, I say to people, it's what's on your, you know, in your email signature. It's what's, uh, you know, you could be the CEO and that's still your role all the way down to whatever it is. It's on your LinkedIn profile. Your job, however, everybody on a winning team knows they have the same job and that's to help the team win. Uh, and if, if we yeah. put our role above our job, it's like me going out to pitch and saying, I just want to pitch a great game. I don't care if we win or not. I just want to, right? Like, like, and that's, wait a minute. Like, again, I want to pitch well. Of course we want to do our role well. Of course it's like, but if I have a great year and our team is terrible, or if I pitch a great game, but we lose, it, okay, I can still feel good about my performance personally, but that's not ultimately why we're here. And so it's challenging, especially the bigger the organization. And that's why where leadership comes in all the way from the top, but then down through the organization is reminding everybody, this is how your role, what you do specifically, ties into your job, which is what we're doing here collectively. And the better leaders and better organizations and some of the companies that I work with that do a great job, they're really good at being able to communicate and articulate this sense of inclusion and belonging that like people who work for Google as an example. Now, Google's a big, huge company that's had a ton of success. They're, they're not immune from issues and challenges. However, when you walk into any Google office on the planet, which they're all closed now because everyone's working from home, but if you talk to people who work for Google, across the board, it's one of the most palpable senses of pride and belonging that people have of like, we're here, we belong to this really important company that's doing this great work in the world that you talk to people almost to, to a degree that's a little bit um, uh, hyperbolic is like they really believe they're out to change the world in what right. they're doing. And it's and, and I've had a chance to travel to 15 different offices of Google around the world. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Buenos Aires, or in New York City, or in San Francisco, or I'm in London, or Zurich, or wherever the language and the culture changes a little bit based on the region, but like, you know, you're in a Google office. And when you talk to people, there's that same quality of like, wow, this is the same at the headquarters in Mountain View as it is in this office in Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's a really strong culture. Yeah. And that has to be especially hard. So I'm thinking of Laney College, John Beam, and I noticed one of the challenges he has is okay the team's got to win but you got these kids who their individual performance and their stats reigns high with them because right. the, the scouts are looking at them and they want to get drafted or yes. they want to get picked up by a college and so beams constantly making the case for hey the best way for you to get where you want to go 
is for those scouts and for the world to trust me right and my recommendation as opposed right. to you lobbying for yourself and the best way they can trust me is we got to win baby totally <laughs> well and, and and look and this is a re- this is a real world challenge because both in sports and I know this as a former athlete but again if you use Laney College as an example right junior college two-year school, everyone there who's playing football wants to go play at a Division I college. So they're trying to get a scholarship to go play for a couple more years. The same is true, though, in the business world, and especially today. And whether we're talking Silicon Valley or even you know small business entrepreneurs, and you know, e- even in the network marketing world or wherever we are, it's like people are often looking, how do I not only have success here, but position myself for success for the next move, right? right. That's life. And that's okay. Yeah. The thing that I often say to people, though, whatever business you're in, however big or small the company is, whatever industry you're in, you're always more valuable when you're on a winning team. Always. Again, look at sports. Just take baseball as an example. You take a player, you know, a a mediocre player. And look, let's be honest, all professional athletes are really, really talented. But relative to the superstars, you know, they're sort of mediocre kind of journeyman players. You get a journeyman player who ends up playing for, you know, the Washington Nationals last year and they win the World Series. That journeyman player is more valuable than his counterpart on a team like the Kansas City Royals or, you know, the San Francisco Giants or whoever, just relative to they didn't win a championship because when they go to sign their next contract the next year and they're deciding who do we want, hey, Joe Smith played for the Nationals, they just won a title versus, you know, you know, Hector Hernandez over here played for the Royals and they haven't won in forever or whatever. You know what I mean? So it becomes the same thing. You work for a company that's winning, a team that's succeeding, that makes you more valuable in the marketplace. It also creates a mindset that we all have. There's a different way we carry ourselves when we're on a successful team than when we're not. And so all of these things matter. So I often say to people, look, let's just say for the sake of argument, you don't care about anybody else's success. (laughs) You're only out for yourself, which is not usually the case, but let's just use that as an example. It's still in your personal best interest to be on a winning team and therefore to be a team player because as the team succeeds, you benefit from the success of the team. Yeah. And in business, sports, not so much because they don't go out of business. Right. But, you know, what's always present for a business, not a Google necessarily, but certainly a startup is, hey, what's more important than your own personal performance is the business has to succeed. It has to continue to grow. It has to be relevant. And totally. that's job number one. Right. And, that's and- a- Go ahead. Well, I was, and, and think about, you're absolutely right. And, and look, here's the brutal reality of what we're living through right now. A lot of businesses are struggling, right? Some businesses, based on the industry they're in or the market or the model, they're doing really well. It's kind of the haves and the have-nots right now. There's a bunch of businesses that are just sort of subsisting and down for the year trying to get through this time. And then there's a bunch that are either haven't made it or aren't going to make it. One of the things I think about this, and I think about this for myself, even in my own consulting business, my own speaking and coaching business over the last 20 years, now entering into another phase where economically things are a little bit, you know, tense and different. And now I'm delivering all of my, you know, speeches and programs from here in my office as opposed to out in the world, which is odd. And companies are challenged. But I think about, you know, going through a couple of economic downturns myself and anybody listening, you know, we've all gone through these in the last, you know, couple decades, depending on our age and what we do. Part of what happens in those situations is, look, if you're working for and in a business where 
you know, I think of like, I, I did some work with a company, StubHub, right? And all they do is sell tickets on the secondary market for events. None of those events happening. There's nothing you can do. You could be the most brilliant. Right. StubHub, StubHub was actually purchased from eBay in February, right before the pandemic hit. I mean, just talk about terrible, wow. talk about terrible timing. But if you work in an industry like that, or back in March and April, when I was talking to some of the folks at, at The Gap, you know, and all their brands and all their stores were closed, it's like they had to furlough everybody. There wasn't anything they can do. And it wasn't that they messed up or that it was just like their business model and how they do business and what they're serving isn't. You know, but if you work at Netflix or you work at Zoom or you work for, you know, an, an e-commerce company or you work for Costco or whatever right now, you're, it's booming Amazon because you're, they're hiring like crazy. So I say all of that because what it comes down to, though, ultimately, Richard, and you and I both know this, right? Relationships and reputation. Are you going to get, is your business or are you person, let's say, God forbid, you lose your business goes under or you lose your job, right? How do you recover from that? Well, if you have a strong reputation and you have strong relationships, you start sending emails and texts and making phone calls and reaching out to people. And they're like, hey, Richard, remember? Oh, yeah, we worked together 10 years ago. You were awesome. You know what I mean? That then becomes the currency that you have. Not necessarily, hey, I came, my business just went under or the company I was working for had to let me go, which is awful. Or we, we, what we were doing wasn't viable. We tried to pivot and it didn't work. Being able to make it through difficult times has a lot to do with those intangibles. And also, yeah. by the way, let's just say we're not in difficult times and we're looking at how do I proceed and, and, and move forward in my career. When I sit in the room with leaders in some of these big companies and they're making decisions about who gets promoted to VP or who gets the next opportunity, it's always a conversation about character and about emotional intelligence. It's never a conversation really about competency and skills and intelligence. Because if that wasn't there, that person wouldn't even be in the conversation anyway. But the difference, and it's the same thing too in sports. It's like the skills are there, the numbers are there, but it's the intangibles. I want that person on my team because he or she is going to bring something to our culture and our chemistry, make us better versus, oh, you know what? That person kind of has a bad attitude. We don't really want them around. And those right. things, you know, I learned years ago from scouts, like don't ever let the, the, the scouts see you have a bad attitude because even if you fail in the game, you can always control your attitude. You go throw right. your glove and throw a fit and yell at the umpire and yell at your teammates, right? <laughs> that lets everybody know, oh, he's a jerk. You don't want him on your team, but let him see, even if you have a terrible game, hey, he's got enough mental and emotional stability that he can handle struggling. And, and that's something that I've taken to this day and I think is really important. Yeah, that's, that's so profound, Mike. I th I'm thinking about sports and the intangible, okay, there's lots of people that have talent, but notice whenever you watch a sports story or something or just a coverage of a team, notice how the guy or the gal on the team that becomes the team leader, the cheerleader, the spiritual leader, the yep. champion that, you know, always like, hey, guys, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Come on. Let's do it. Yep. That person becomes the VIP. Totally. They may not have the stats, but um, they may not actually get the VIP award because they don't have the stats for the game. Right. But they are, in the coach's mind, a most valuable player. And you said something so important in business is your network, Yeah, I think, e equals eventually your net worth. Totally. Like you're tied. And if, you're, if your persona in a company, in a business is you're competing against everybody else. You're trying to look good. You're always trying to be right. You're politicking. 
you're basically playing the game for you, not yeah. you're doing your role, not the job of having that. Yeah. Then if you ever need those people, yeah. Like if, if you ever need a reference, if you ever need somebody to say, hey, is there any openings up there? Uh, there are, but none for you, buddy. Yeah. Right. We don't need toxicity over here. We don't totally. Need that kind of competition here. And that's the thing where it's like, you know, we talk a lot these days in business about your personal brand. And you can think of it sort of superficially, you know, how do you look and what does it look like on social media and, and those things, you know, or even now, I mean, you and I are here talking on Zoom and the different ways that we try to set up so it looks halfway decent when we're connecting with people on video and other things. However, to me, personal brand is much more about you know, our personal reputation, our personal integrity. And I often talk a lot about this, that there's two types of credibility, Richard, and they're both important, but we over-index on one and we under-index on the other. We over-index on professional credibility. Not that it's not important, right? It's again, it's your resume. It's your, you know, where you went to school or the results you produced or where you worked or the company that you ran or, or what, whatever. All those things matter. I often say when I'm speaking to groups or even here having a conversation like this, like if I didn't have any professional credibility to be here, I wouldn't be here, right? It's like, hey, you got to have right. some to get in the room, to get in the door, <laughs> to be there. However, what's more important, especially when we're talking about building a strong team or having influence, whether it's sales influence or really trying to make a difference for people or whatever, is personal credibility. And personal credibility is more about, can I trust you? Can I relate to you? Can we, do we, can we find common ground, even and especially if we're different? Can, do you listen to me? Do you care about me? All of those things that are intangible, and, and let's be honest, can be even harder in this virtual world that we now find ourselves in now. But, you know, we're in even before the pandemic and will be afterwards just because of the nature of how we communicate and how business is done these days. Those things matter so much more. And when I hear people talk about other people, like, what are the things that we say? It's not usually like, oh, that guy Richard is like so smart and he knows all this and he has all these technical skills. It's more about how do I feel when I interact with Richard, right? Or what's that like? Oh, you can really trust him. You can really count on him. He'll tell you the truth. He'll let you know. He'll apologize if something goes wrong or whatever. Like, and those things matter. And again, in the world that we live in right now, especially as disrupted as everything is, that's what carries the day. And we, it's not the old days where you go get a job at, you know, IBM or, you know, Ford at, you know, right out of college and you work there for the rest of your life and they give you a watch and say, thanks for coming when you retire. Right. Like we're moving around and we're changing and people are working for small companies and big companies are starting their own businesses or being on, doing all kinds of things. And so much of what matters is the relationships that we build and the reputation that we have in how we operate, both in good times, by the way. And also when things get a little tough and they go sideways. I love that saying, you know, circumstances don't define us, they reveal us. Right. And so part of what I've been saying to my own team and thinking about over these last many months as we've been going through this time is how are we going to show up for this challenge and how are we going to serve and support the people that we do business with? Not simply just because we're trying to generate revenue and we got to stay in business. And that is a reality, of course, but how do we show up in service to people that can benefit from what it is we provide. And if we do that, I'm sure we'll be able to generate some revenue. But you know, back in March and April, when this thing first hit, like a lot of other people, I didn't know what the heck was going to happen. I still don't. Most of us don't. But I knew and I remember saying to my wife and to my team and the people around me, like, let's show up and be in service as much as we possibly can and trust 
that if what we do continues to be valuable and there's still a market for it, it will happen. Yeah, that's a, a form of pivoting. Yes. So I have two more questions for you. One of them is, could I mean, you may have just answered it in character, but I want to see how you answer it specifically. Most of the people listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs. Right. They're like you. Yep. And they're like me. Yep. They're sole proprietors and they have some kind of a small business. Some of them are real estate, some of them are mortgage brokers, some of them are network marketers. Yep. Some of them are speakers and coaches. So everything that you've learned, and you know, one of the things I appreciate about you that we didn't even get into is you're a massive student. You have studied some of the brightest minds and philosophers and data and you have done a great deal of study you just didn't start writing books because you wanted a book right. you you wrote because you learned some really profound things that you could back up what you had to say in the book yeah well if you combine all of that um and you're speaking to an entrepreneur let's say in today's environment what would you say to an entrepreneur about, hey, these are some things to think about and incorporate in your business, your life, your persona, your beliefs, your identity, your state of being, so you can prosper in an ever-changing, erratic world? Yeah, well, listen, I, I, first of all, I appreciate the context of the question and, and the acknowledgement. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I've always felt, Richard, I mean, the reason why... I started doing this work more than almost anything. Yes, I was interested in those things I mentioned earlier as an athlete about, you know, how do we take our talent and turn it into success? And if we have any success, how does it actually become fulfillment? And I was also interested in group and team dynamics and kind of what makes a great team. But at a deeper level, I had spent a lot of my life, my young life, you know, raised by a single mom. We didn't have a lot of money. I was able to go to college and play baseball and was hoping to make it to the major leagues and get myself out of the situation that I had grown up in and all those things. And while it didn't happen the way I expected it to, I had pushed and worked really hard to try to do all the things you were supposed to do in order to be successful and then order to be happy. And I found myself even in my early 20s when I was playing baseball, not that happy. And I realized, oh, I think I'm missing the point. Like the point isn't to go chase something and then achieve it and then have that create the happiness. The point is to learn how to experience that sense of happiness and fulfillment in the process. Again, a cliche, but it's all true. It's like, it's not the you know destination, it's the journey. But that's actually really hard, especially in the world in which we live. And for a lot of entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and people that I know who, whether they've been doing it for a long time or just starting out, is to realize that part of choosing to do this. And I remember a mentor of mine years ago saying to me, Mike, there's, there's two types of people professionally, like people who go work for other people or people who go create something themselves. And he's like, I have no judgment about either one, but those are very different realities. And you have to decide, do you have the sort of intestinal fortitude to go create something of your own? Because while it can be incredibly fulfilling and exciting, it's also scary and challenging and hard and you don't get a paycheck no one just writes you a check at the end of two weeks and says, thanks for coming. You have to go make it happen. And so I say all of that to everybody listening from the standpoint of one of the most important things, Richard, that I've learned through all these years, 20 years of doing this, is that 
focusing on my own well-being, my own personal growth, my own learning and introspection, uh, my own spiritual connection is at the center of my life. Like that's what comes first. My, my wife, my girls, my family is right there next to it. But those things are the foundation. And my business and the work I do is super important to me. And I spend, quite frankly, more time with my work than I do with my own personal journey and my spiritual journey, as well as with my family, even now in quarantine. But I have to remember those priorities. And so like personal growth is professional growth. And the more we're sort of working on ourselves in, in a positive and proactive way, the more that's going to benefit whatever we do, right? And I think it's easy sometimes when things get stressful or challenging. And I had to manage this a few months ago and still do now when things get disrupted and it gets a little scary, it's easy to go into scarcity mode and just think, I just got to work harder. I just got to push more. <laughs> and there's a certain diminishing returns aspect of that that we have to remember. Yeah. So as I was thinking about all the high-level clients uh, you have and you talking about as a, you know, you, the two different types of business people, employees or, or people that go build something. Yep. Um, I don't know if you've ever quantified this or if you've spoken about it, but if I were to ask you, how many times did potential clients say no to you and or ghost you? Meaning they didn't even bother to reply. <laughs> How much rejection? I mean, you know, so, okay, you decide, well, I'm going to be an author and a speaker and, oh, I'm going to even make it worse and say, well, I'm a coach. Right. I'm a business coach. You know, you and 9,000 other people exactly. down the street. Right. <laughs> so how how did you differentiate yourself and how did you get through the nose and could you ever answer that question? What percentage of people said no versus people said yes? Well, look, I mean, early on, a ton of no's. You know, my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, came out in 2007. I started working on that book in 2001 when I first started my business. It got rejected by 25 publishers before I finally got a yes from a publisher, Wiley, who, who published that first book. And I gave up on that project a number of times because my feelings were hurt, my ego was bruised. I'm like, I'm no good, I can't do this, this is terrible. I right? love it, I love um, it. <laughs> but, but again, and, and I would say, but what I, looking back though, I can now see I wasn't quite ready to write the book until I finally did get the yes. So it was more of an inside job. Something shifted in me and then the world outside changed. Look, even to this day, even 20 years into this, um, you know, I get rejection all the time. We, we got an email back from, from a company yesterday on something. I put, we put together this big proposal. We were all excited. Thank you very much. We've picked somebody else. And look, I mean, I'm, I'm a human being. It's a little gut punch every time we get that email, right? I, I try to then like internalize it and go, okay. And I'm always, look, but I, I've learned this enough over the years. I'm very gracious authentically. In fact, thank you for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. Our team is grateful. Let's stay in touch because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten no, 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 no for two years, five years, a decade. I mean, I have people come back around who've said no so many times who will then say yes. And what's funny is, and Richard, you've been in business and living long enough to know this. Sometimes people will even be dismissive about us and our work at some point, then come around later and say, oh, I've known Mike for years. He's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding? But that goes back to, it goes back to the thing. Look, I, years ago, the first job I had in technology, I worked for an internet company. I was in sales, selling advertising. 
And I remember the first sales manager I had, again, it was a cliche that I'd never heard before, but it was really good. He said to me, how do you feel about hearing no? And I could tell it was like some kind of trick question. And I was like, um, um, I don't like it. And he was like, okay, well, you want to get over that. And I was like, okay. right. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, because if you're going to be successful in sales, you got to get good hearing no. And he said, and every time you hear no, say thank you, because you're closer to a yes. And I had never heard that before, although it's sort of sales 101, but it was super important to me. And I didn't like no then. I still don't like no now, but I've learned just like in baseball, I never like to lose, but there's a lot of losing in baseball. So you learn how to lose so you can learn how to win. That no's and the rejections, I think we think erroneously we're going to get to a point where it's not going to bother us and we don't care anymore. I've yet to meet a human being that doesn't care about hearing no when they care about what they do. So it's not about getting over the no's. It's just about understanding that's part of the deal. That's part of the price of doing business. And if we can then get to the point, I want to be in a position where I'm getting enough no's that I know I'm putting myself out there. Because now when I hear the no's, I get way more yeses than no's these days for sure than I used to. But I know that like, I'd rather be in the game getting the no than not in the game at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's the slam dunk for everybody listening to this because I, I find that pe when people go into whatever business they're in and they have this expectation that the prospect should say yes, right, will say yes, and then they don't say yes, the pe they, people get just, they get twisted. And when yep. you get twisted, you're no good to yourself or anybody else. And so you just have to create an empowering interpretation Totally. Whether it's next, next, or not now, or right. closer to a yes, or uh, you know, we're not failing, we're learning, we're either succeeding or learning. What? Well, and, <laughs> make and up whether whether story you need to make up, but make up something that keeps you charging. You know what? You know what? I, I just had this thought, and it's a funny story from when I was nine years old playing little league, and this circles back around to the rejection thing because I think one of the things that I've always tried to do is be grateful for any success that might come my way. Not that, and I don't mean this in some like false, um, uh, you know, just uh, pretending to be humble. But I, what I mean by that is like, I think we can simultaneously be confident and authentically humble at the same time. When I was nine years old, I, I was playing baseball and I was on a team. Little League in those days was nine to 12. So all the kids were older than me and bigger than me, but I made the team and was playing and was in the starting lineup, even though I was one of the smallest, youngest kids on the team, but they only let me play the outfield. And I really wanted to pitch. And I kept trying to convince my coach to let me pitch. But his son was one of the pitchers and another kid. And he's like, we already got our two pitchers. We're good. But we lost our first five games. And he's like, fine. All right, Robbins, I'll give you a chance. You can pitch. And I'd been practicing with my friend up the street. who was a little older than me, but I'd never pitched in a real game against real hitters. So I didn't know. I might have been good. I might have been terrible. But I go out to pitch and I was really good surprising to me and everybody. And the first kid that I ever struck out, I was so excited because I was so nervous. I literally jumped up and down on the mound and it was a little bit obnoxious to the poor kid that I struck out. But I was so excited, like, oh my gosh, I just struck somebody out. Maybe I'm good at this. This is fun. And then I ended up striking out a bunch of kids and I had a great game. But there was something, I think all the way back to that moment where it's even now 20 years into this, when I get booked for a speaking engagement or I get someone who reaches out and says, I read your book and it touched me or, hey, we want to order a bunch of books for our team or whatever the heck it is related to business, big and small. 
to me, there's still that little nine-year-old kid inside of me that jumps up on the mound and is like, I can't believe I get to do this and people enjoy it because this is not super easy. You know, look, I'm not, you know, curing cancer, but I'm doing something that matters to me and that I think is important. And I say that with whatever business you're in when you're listening, yes, it's disappointing when things don't go well. Yes, it's disappointing when we get no. Yes, it's challenging when we're going through a global pandemic like right now that's impacting all of us. But if we can bring forth some sense of, authentic gratitude and appreciation for getting to do what we do. And when people do say yes, if we can get more excited about the yes, then we get disappointed about the no. That's when we really start to shift our mindset in a more positive way. Yeah. That's beautiful, beautiful stuff. So um, what are you up to now and where can people find you? Like what, what do you want to, what work do you want to be doing right now? Do you want to be virtual speaking you want to be coaching um you want to sign books what do you, what do you want to do and where's the best place for people to find you well the, so the best place to find me is at our website which is just mike-robbins.com it's just m-i-k-e hyphen r-o-b-b-i-n-s.com and and the things that i want to be doing it's a lot of what i am doing i mean look i'd rather be out in the world speaking at live events in person with people but that's not on the table at the moment so doing a lot of these virtual keynotes and and webinars and different things i'm actually enjoying and grateful and in some cases they can scale i did one earlier this week that actually had 14,000 people which is like i'm not usually on stage in front of 14,000 people so that was kind of exciting um but also really enjoying and appreciating the conversation around this book. We're all in this together because while it is about teams and it's about business and it's about us succeeding, I do feel really passionate right now, Richard, that we're way more alike than we are different. There's a lot of issues going on in our country and our world that are understandable and significant. But at the end of the day, I just feel like it's an important process for us. Whatever happens, we got to come back to remembering that we're in this thing together. And, and that's, a big passion of my work. So whether it's on my podcast or whether it's when I'm coaching people or whether it's when I'm speaking, it's like reminding myself and the rest of us, like that's what's really most important to me right now. Beautiful. So folks, get this book. We're all in this together. You can buy it at mike-robbins.com. You can buy it on Amazon. You can get the Audible, which I also just got at audible.com because guess what? We are all in this together and we're going to do much better together with like locking arms than we were fighting with each other. Mike, thank you. Thank um, you. That hour, that hour when you said, how long will we do this? I said 30 <laughs> to 45 minutes. We, we crushed an hour and we could have easily kept going. Yes. Tons of great wisdom. Thank you, sir, for sharing with all of us at, uh, richardbrook.com and the Authentic Networker podcast. And to all of you out there, take this and share it, scale it. He said, you know, some things scale to 14,000. That's nothing. Scale this to 100,000. Share this. You know how to do it, right? You share it with four. They each share it with four. They each share it with four. <laughs> That's how we get there. Thank you all. We'll see you next time. Richard Blissbrook. Thank you for tuning in to The Richard Brook Show to learn about network marketing and hearing stories of success. We found that the number one criteria for success is belief. Belief you can, belief you will, belief you are. Belief turns dreams into goals and goals into visions and visions into reality. You can help lift up your team by encouraging them to study these stories over and over again. 
repetition is the mother of faith. And if your team is already studying the four-year career, you know its impact on belief and organic growth. If not, you'll want to study it right away and get it into the hands of your team. You can order it at richardbrook.com or amazon.com.